The topic for this episode was chosen by a patron, Lizzie Ramirez. Thank you so much for your support, Lizzie. And if you, dear listener, would be interested in choosing a future episode topic of your own, or would just like access to all of my bonus episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash historium, or search for historium in the Patreon app. One last note before we get started. As an American telling an American story, I sadly have a poor knowledge of the metric system and Celsius, so all temperatures will be in Fahrenheit unless otherwise noted. And with that, let's get to it. Dr. Curtis Welch cleared the snow from the doorway before squeezing inside. After entering the warm hospital, he performed the ritual all too familiar to those who live north of the Arctic Circle. He hung his hat, then scarf, then coat on the rack beside the door. The entire medical community in Nome, Alaska consisted of Welch and his four nurses. Everyone else had left for warmer climates before the port froze over. One of the young nurses approached Dr. Welch. The distressed look in her eyes told the doctor everything he needed to know. He followed her across the small 25-bed hospital to a family surrounding a bedridden young girl. She was struggling to breathe. Dr. Welch had been traveling through the town answering calls about young children with sore throats. He deemed most of the cases to be tonsillitis or strep throat, but now he feared the worst. He had the family prop up the girl's head and opened her mouth. Dr. Welch lifted a lantern and peered into her throat. His heart sank. Gray lesions lined the walls of her throat, signs of a centuries-old bacterium known for killing children by slowly suffocating them. For good reason, the disease is referred to as the strangler. Now it's better known as diphtheria. In the preceding decades, enterprising epidemiologists had developed an antitoxin that could stop the disease in its tracks. And even the microscopic town of Nome had some. However, delivery was difficult and space on a ship was expensive, so the antitoxin in the small northern hospital had expired. And despite Dr. Welch placing orders for more, none had arrived prior to the port freezing at the end of the summer. Still, Welch thought he should try, so he administered some of the expired antitoxin to see if it might still have any effect. As they all waited, Dr. Welch felt the familiar feeling of hopelessness that he had felt seven years ago, when the Spanish flu ran rampant. The illness hit the town hard, but the surrounding native communities had been devastated. With no natural immunity, their population was cut in half. After a few hours, the girl looked better. Welch checked the reading on the thermometer. Sure enough, her fever had dropped. The gray lesions in her throat shed off. Dr. Welch allowed himself a bit of hope. But as night fell, the girl's condition worsened. Her symptoms were a textbook example of diphtheria. Sunken eyes, purple lips, coughing up blood. She died later that night. Dr. Curtis Welch was facing a small-town doctor's nightmare. The expired antitoxin was ineffective, and the town of Nome now had a full-fledged diphtheria epidemic on their hands. If this diphtheria outbreak was not contained, Nome could lose half of its children. In the surrounding tribal communities, the number would be even higher. The sea ice blocking the port wouldn't thaw for months, and the mountainous wilderness between Nome and the rest of the world was some of the most difficult terrain on the planet. With the closest fresh antitoxin hundreds of miles away, Dr. Welch and the residents of Nome, Alaska might as well have been on the surface of the moon. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 69, The Great Race of Mercy.
Residents of Nome, Alaska have a saying. There's only two seasons here, winter and the 4th of July. The townsfolk of Nome not only have to brave the frigid temperatures of the Arctic, but also the remoteness of a community so distant from any other. For much of its history, Nome was the northernmost town in the United States, closer to Russia than any other Alaskan city. The international dateline is just off the coast, so technically, from Nome, you can literally see tomorrow. There were no roads connecting Nome to other settlements, just shoddy dog sled trails laden with risks. The nearest train station in the newly christened Alaska Railroad was in Nanana, as far away as New York City is from Indianapolis. Nome was cut off from the rest of the world, save for the port that was only open a few months out of the year. All of the town's supplies came through the port, and when it froze over, it was like a vault door closing shut until the next spring. Many residents spent the winters elsewhere. When the port closed, it was said that even God himself left on the last ship out of town. The settlement was founded in the late 1890s. Three Swedish men, part of an experimental government program to introduce reindeer to native Alaskan tribes, stumbled upon a gold nugget the size of a bowling ball. The three lucky Swedes' discovery set off a stampede of eager miners, all drawn in by the stories of gold nuggets free for the taking at the tip-top of the world. The boomtown that sprung up nearby was called Nome. The name apparently comes from a misunderstanding of an old nautical chart where a British cartographer wrote, question mark, name. Question mark, name got turned into Sea Nome, or Cape Nome. The promise of gold made the population of Nome skyrocket as a city of tents spread out from Main Street to accommodate the miners. Some gold was found around the turn of the century, but eventually most of the prospectors went bust and fled south for warmer climates. Which isn't saying a lot, because just about anywhere else on the globe is warmer than this little mining town. The average temperature during the winters was in the single digits, but any cold front or winter storm could drop the temperature into the negatives. Blizzards would make it so cold that standard thermometers were rendered useless. When the temperature dropped below what a standard thermometer could record, pioneers would use other means to tell the temperature. They would place several glass vials outside their door. One contained mercury or quicksilver, which froze at negative 40 degrees. The next contained coal oil, which froze at negative 50 degrees. The next was filled with ginger extract, which froze at negative 60 degrees. And the final vial was filled with Perry Davis's painkiller, a crude medicine bordering on snake oil made of alcohol, spices, and opium, which had a freezing point of 75 degrees below zero. For the townsfolk of Nome, the ice ages of years past were not historical eras, but rather their everyday reality. After the gold rush ended, the town's population plummeted. By 1925, only 1,400 gritty holdouts remained, willing to brave the elements of the northernmost town in the United States in a territory still 34 years from statehood. They had a church, a bank, a saloon, and the Maynard Columbus Hospital. Nome society functioned much like an island. To survive the cruel winters, the tight-knit community would have only each other to rely on. One animal ensured the isolated communities of northern Alaska stayed connected, dogs. With the proper expertise, dog sled teams could brave the elements and zip between Nome, native communities, and mining outposts, operating as mail couriers, ambulances, and taxis. Sled drivers were called mushers, after the French word marchands, which meant let's march. 
Training and breeding programs popped up all over to meet the need, but demand outpaced supply so much that a black market sprung up. Thousands of dogs were kidnapped from the continental United States and sold in the north. Any dog that looked like he could haul a sled was unsafe out on the streets of any port city on the west coast. A reliable dog sled team was perhaps the most valuable asset a person in Nome could have. Most years, there were more dogs in and around Nome than people. On a cold winter's night, you could look out and see the northern lights dancing in the sky above you while listening to an orchestra of dogs howling in unison, known as the Malamute Chorus. Mushing was essential for commerce in the region, but it also became a source of recreation, competition, and eventually wagering. Sled dog racing status as a sport was made all but official in 1908 with the inaugural All-Alaska Sweepstakes, a multi-day derby tracing a 400-plus mile route along the Bering Sea, starting in Nome. The trail crossed the Continental Divide twice. One year, a Russian fur trader from Siberia entered the sweepstakes with a team of sled dogs that were around half the size of the local Alaskan breeds. His team went off as a 100-to-1 long shot. When he and his team placed second, it nearly bankrupted the bookies in Nome. The new breed of dogs he was using would soon become ubiquitous. They came to be known as the Siberian Husky. The denizens of Nome were never alone in their struggles. It was always man and man's best friend versus the elements. Over the next day, Dr. Curtis Welch confirmed several more cases of diphtheria, with over 50 more children who were at risk due to their exposure with the infected. He quickly contacted the town mayor, George Maynard. When faced with the severity of the epidemic, Mayor Maynard and the rest of the town council voted unanimously to place Nome under quarantine. Even though Nome was shut off from the rest of the world, the town at least had a method of communicating with the outside world thanks to the telegraph installed years earlier by the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Dr. Welch immediately sent a message to state and federal authorities. Quote, An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made application to Commissioner of Health of the territories for antitoxin already. Stop. Schools were shut down. Sunday church service was canceled. Dog sled teams were dispatched with words of warning to the native Alaskans living in the surrounding communities. The carpenter in Nome dutifully went about his work, constructing coffins for the dead children. It was far too cold during the winter to bury anyone, so these diphtheria victims would be placed in the small coffins and buried in snowdrifts until the spring thaw. Within a few days of declaring an epidemic and sending out a telegraph message, Nome got a response. Hard-working medical bureaucrats managed to scrounge together 300,000 units of antitoxin and had it shipped to Anchorage, Alaska. While that would not be enough antitoxin to stop the epidemic in its tracks, it would be enough to treat the infected and slow the spread until more units could be sent by sea in the spring. Now, the issue was transportation. The town council met to consider solutions. Several proposals were put forward, but all had their problems. The American naval fleet possessed several steam-powered ironclad vessels that occasionally operated as icebreakers. However, the winter of 1925 had been particularly cold. 
so cold that no icebreaker of the era could possibly break through into the port of Nome. Since the serum could not be transported by sea, one member of the town council proposed transport by air. After the First World War, the U.S. Army dismantled its air force, selling off most of the planes to whoever wanted them. And, as luck would have it, two such planes were currently in Alaska. However, these planes were early biplanes. They had open-air cockpits and water-cooled engines, neither of which were conducive to a long-distance winter flight. Bush pilots had never traveled close to that distance, even in the summer. It was likely that the planes would go down, destroying the serum in the crash. Besides, the respective pilots for these two planes were not currently in Alaska. Due to the many risk factors and unavailability of pilots, transport by aeroplane was vetoed by the town council. Only one option remained, a dog sled relay. It was a long shot, but it was all they had. During the meeting, Dr. Welch was lost in his thoughts. He couldn't stop thinking about the effects of the Spanish flu years prior. Bodies piled up, the constant coughs in the hospital. He distinctly remembered finding a native man dead in his igloo, his hands frozen to his rifle, which was pointed at the door in an attempt to fend off his dogs that he was too sick to feed. The doctor shook away the memories when he realized the mayor was asking him a question. Sorry, what? He responded. How long could the serum last on the trail? The mayor asked again. Dr. Welch's eyes darted back and forth as he did the math in his head. Six days, a week tops. The mood in the room darkened. The trip usually took 30 days, and it was currently the coldest winter in a generation. But it was their only option left. The meeting adjourned, and the council began making preparations for a dog sled relay, and they knew just who could navigate the hardest leg of the trail, Leonard Seppala. Leonard Seppala was born in a small town in Norway in 1877. His father was a blacksmith, and Seppala intended to follow him into the trade. At age 20, he proposed to his childhood sweetheart, which he died unexpectedly before they reached the altar. Craving an escape from his grief, Seppala listened intently when a friend, one of the so-called three lucky Swedes, returned from Alaska a very, very rich man. He'd found gold outside of Nome and become a prominent figure in the Alaskan gold rush. Why not come back with me, he asked. Seppala agreed. He worked for the Pioneer Mining Company and enjoyed the wild expanse that was not so different from his native Norway. His job was a dog sled driver, and from his first mush, he fell in love. At 5'4 and only 145 pounds, Seppala's size made him a lighter load for his dogs, but despite his slight build, the Norwegian musher was astoundingly strong. All the time spent outdoors made him deeply tan, with rows of wrinkles that made him look much older than he actually was. In 1913, the same friend Seppala had come to Alaska with had brought several puppies from Russia as a gift to Roald Amundsen, an aging Arctic explorer who was planning an expedition to the North Pole. However, Amundsen cancelled the trip, so Seppala was left with the Siberian puppies. After the success of the smaller breed in the All-American sweepstakes, Seppala started a breeding program. In 1914, at the last minute, he decided to enter the All-American sweepstakes himself. During the race, his team was blindsided by a blizzard. He became desperately lost and was forced to drop out of the race in shame. Some of his dogs barely survived the effects of frostbite. 
Sepala felt he had abused the dog's loyalty by putting them in danger. The next year, he studied the trail and trained intensely with his team. By the sweepstakes of 1915, Sepala entered the race with confidence and placed first. He did it again in 1916 and again in 1917. His three consecutive first place finishes earned him universal acclaim in Alaska, and the dogs he bred and trained were among the most sought after in the entire territory. Sepla was a tireless musher, and his dogs matched his tenacity. Most dog sled teams considered 30 miles to be a long run. Sepla and his team sometimes traveled over 100 miles in a single run. Most dog sled teams didn't operate when the snow thawed, but Sepla insisted on training year-round. In the summer, citizens of Nome would laugh as they saw Sepala's dog team pulling a cart on wheels instead of a sled. Another crucial component of Sepala's success was his relationship with the Huskies. He spent so much time with his dogs and trained them so specifically that each of the pups followed his exact commands. Other mushers who raced against him in the All-American sweepstakes insisted he literally had a method of canine hypnotism that he kept only to himself. The quirky Norwegian musher became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1917 and was a cornerstone of the Nome community. He would often walk down the streets of Nome on his hands to entertain the local children. But now, in the middle of the winter of 1925, these kids were in danger, and most remained cooped up in their homes due to the quarantine. Seppala himself had an eight-year-old daughter. When asked by the town council, Seppala accepted the task of navigating the most difficult part of the trail in the Serum Relay. Federal officials shipped the 300,000 units of antitoxin from Seattle to Anchorage. From there, it was taken by train to the end of the line, Nanana, Alaska, still 674 miles from Nome. From there, the precious vials of antitoxin serum were sealed in a metal cylinder and then carefully wrapped in blankets for insulation. On the cylinder were directions for keeping the serum in the right temperature zone, including instructions to bring the cylinder inside and heat it by a fire every few hours. This would obviously be impossible. On the night of January 27, 1925, a steam-powered locomotive emerged from the darkness. Before the train even came to a complete stop at the station, the conductor jumped onto the platform and ran the 20-pound cylinder containing the life-saving serum through a small crowd gathered to the dog sled waiting nearby. The first musher was a character all his own, Wild Bill Shannon. The blonde, lanky sled driver was one of the best in the area. A vibrant storyteller, Shannon boasted that his lead dog, Blackie, was the descendant of a timber wolf. He carefully bundled the cylinder up with layer upon layer of blankets, hoping to insulate it against the coming cold. Shannon was a known risk taker, but not this night. He checked and double-checked the ropes tying down the precious cargo. As he did, steam rose off of his briefly exposed fingers. It was 50 below zero. At this temperature, any exposed extremity would turn purplish-black and become the same texture as wood in just minutes. For that reason, he was urged to wait until morning, hoping the rising sun would raise the temperature. But while Bill Shannon was insistent, he said, If people are dying... Let's get started. He checked on his dogs one last time, waved to the crowd, and then took off into the freezing Alaskan wilderness. Ahead of him lay 52 miles of rough terrain along the steep banks of the frozen Yukon River. Once on the trail, Shannon encountered his first setback. 
The route was in horrific shape. Weeks prior, a team of horses dragging heavy cargo had dug deep, irregular ruts in the trail. His dogs kept getting tripped up, and Shannon held his breath for the serum each time the sled bounced violently on the torn-up trail. Shannon's team struggled to keep their footing, but powered through for miles. But eventually, Wild Bill Shannon decided to live up to his namesake and take a risk. He ordered his lead dog, Blackie, left, off the trail and onto the frozen river beside them. Contrasting with the bumpy trail, the surface of the frozen river would be as smooth as, well, ice. But it came with its own set of problems. For one, the ice was much colder than the ground on the trail, and the ice particles could build up on the dog's paws over time. An old musher saying is, A man is only as good as his dogs, and dogs are only as good as their feet. Another danger on the frozen river is called drum ice, where the top of the river freezes, but the liquid water beneath drains out, leaving empty pockets. If the ice is too thin above these hollow pockets, a dog sled team could break through, falling 10, sometimes 20 feet to the riverbed below. But Wild Bill Shannon decided the risks of the frozen river were worth the rewards of a faster pace. People were dying, after all. While on the river, Blackie occasionally swerved hard to the left or right. Shannon was about to reprimand his lead dog when he noticed thin ice that he could almost see through right beside the sled. Blackie had been avoiding these areas of thin ice before Shannon could even see them. Shannon did what all experienced sled dog drivers know to do from time to time. He stopped giving orders and put total trust in his lead dog. The perceptive Blackie continued to lead the team over the perilous frozen river. Ahead, at the roadhouse that would serve as a rest stop for Bill Shannon, the owner, Johnny Campbell, checked the makeshift thermometer outside. The quicksilver was frozen solid, as was the coal oil and ginger extract. Only Perry Davis's painkiller remained in a liquid state. That meant the temperature was in the negative 60s. By this point, Shannon and his dogs had been on the trail for over five hours. The dogs were tiring, losing their usually synced-up rhythm with each other. Shannon himself felt his extremities growing numb. In an attempt to get better blood circulation and boost the morale of his dogs, Wild Bill Shannon leaped off the dog sled and began running in front of the dogs. He kicked the air and did jumping jacks as he went, trying to get the blood flowing and trying to keep his mind off the bitter cold all around him. The vigorous movements gave him a bit of relief, but after he returned to the sled, the shivering only got worse. He felt his muscles tense up and sting from a buildup of lactic acid from the extreme cold. His mind began to wander. Shannon knew what was happening. He was becoming hypothermic. He knew, as all mushers did, what hypothermia did to a human body. He would become more and more sore. His skin would turn pale, then grow darker. Impaired sense of balance, slurred speech, altered perception of time, a sense of dread would be followed by a feeling of apathy, where the body craved only one thing, sleep. Blood would stop circulating to his extremities. Then would come a false feeling of warmth, a relief at first, but the sense of heat would build and build until it felt like his insides were on fire. He would become unable to bear the heat and would instinctively remove his clothes. Upon doing that, his fate would be sealed. By this point, his fingers and toes would all be blackened and hard as ice. He would then sink into a slow delirium as vital organs 
ceased to function. Shannon tried to avoid thinking about the effects of hypothermia and instead looked at the bundled cylinder on the sled before him. He thrashed his arms at his sides and yelled up the sliver of a crescent moon through the clouds above him. He was almost there. He had to be. Johnny Campbell waited at the roadhouse. His pocket watch read three in the morning. He paced back and forth. Just then, the door cracked open. Tendrils of ice crackled out on the walls from the doorway. Wild Bill Shannon stumbled through. His face was purple and swollen. His dogs followed behind him, several coughing up blood. It was only around 50 degrees in the roadhouse, but that was still more than 110 degrees warmer than it was outside. Shannon collapsed, and the few people in the roadhouse helped carry him near the fire. The cylinder with the serum was carefully tied up and suspended over the fire to warm it back up. Shannon was too cold to eat or drink, another early symptom of hypothermia. But the worst part about the situation was that this roadhouse was just the halfway point for Shannon. The wounded musher huddled by the fire as the warmth returned to his extremities. Color slowly returned to his face, and the purple-black frostbite began to recede. He was finally able to eat some soup and drink some black coffee. Three of his dogs were in the process of dying. Another could barely walk. Shannon was down to six dogs, but it would have to do. There was a very good chance he would not survive the next leg of the journey. But if he didn't, neither would hundreds of children in Nome. They bundled up the serum cylinder and placed it back on the sled. Wild Bill Shannon finished his sixth cup of coffee and layered back up. He then braved the sub-zero temperatures once again, tied on his surviving dogs, and took off into the frozen wilds. Back in Nome, Dr. Curtis Welch was surprised that the usually stubborn populace of the small town was actually strictly adhering to the quarantine. Still, new cases of diphtheria continued to pop up. The hospital was filled with sick children surrounded by their worried parents. He had finally run out of the expired antitoxin, which did little to stop the disease from taking its terrible toll. Dr. Welch spent much of his time sending telegrams to the lower 48. Soon, the small-town doctor realized just how many people were following their plight. The other end of the telegraph was always eager for more updates. So, Curtis Welch played his part. Mayor Maynard assured him that the time spent sending telegrams was essential in order to receive the necessary attention and funding to maintain the dog sled relay. However, certain Alaskan newspaper editors disagreed. There was a flood of editorials urging the governor of Alaska to cancel the relay and instead use a modern aeroplane. They insisted that the day of the dog had ended. Technology should be relied on instead of primitive methods of transportation. But the dog sled relay was already underway, and the governor refused to budge. In the hospital, Curtis Welch confirmed the death of a fifth child. The nurses consoled the grieving parents and placed a sheet over the tiny body. A blizzard was coming, and it would be far too cold to bury them. At the next handoff point at the roadhouse in Tolvana, Edgar Callens waited diligently. He was an Athabascan native who served as a courier for the U.S. Post Office. Around 11 in the morning, the pristine silence of the snow-covered trail was interrupted by the sound of jangling and crunching snow of a dog sled team. When it rounded the bend, Calland was astounded at the shape the team was in. Several dogs were limping, 
One dog lay motionless on the sled next to what Callens assumed to be the insulated serum. Wild Bill Shannon's face was a deep purple, frozen in a contorted, pained expression. He looked nearly mummified. Callens called for help from the roadhouse. The baton handoff of the life-saving serum was quick. The sunlight raised the temperature to a brisk negative 30 degrees. Callens urged his team of dogs forward, trying not to think of Shannon's frostbitten face behind him. Soon, Callens was on the trail which led into the towering timbers of the Yukon Forest. Behind him, the roadhouse attendants helped Shannon inside. Every movement felt like torture. Several of his dogs had died. Many more were injured so badly that they would never run again. But Shannon had made it, just barely. Meanwhile, just outside of Nome, the Norwegian musher Leonard Seppola's phone rang. He answered, nodded, then hung up. It was time. His portion of the relay would be enormous. He would start in Nome, and over the course of the next few days, make his way to the halfway point, receive the serum, then turn around and bring the baton back to the finish line in Nome. It would be a grueling journey. He had already painstakingly prepared for his part of the mission. He packed tins of salmon to be fed to the dogs while on the trail and stacked them on the sled. His wife, Constance, had prepared his meals. Even with his sled piling up with supplies, he was technically traveling light. Seppla layered up and went out to gather his dogs. A frenzy of yelps and howls greeted him when he went to the kennel. He tied up each of his dogs before getting to the crucial lead position. There was no real choice to be made. The town of Nome was relying on his lead dog to deliver the goods, perhaps even more so than himself. That lead dog was Togo. Togo had served as Seppala's main lead dog for almost a decade now, and his unmatched intelligence and feats of heroism made Togo a household name in northern Alaska. Togo's appearance did not match the legend that had grown around him. He was only 48 pounds. His coat was an amalgamation of colors, blotches of black, brown, and gray, which gave Togo a dirty, unkempt appearance. Togo was born in 1913 and named after the famous Japanese admiral from the Russo-Japanese War, Togo Heihachiro. Seppala paid Togo little attention as a puppy. He was small, careless, and frequently suffered from a throat infection. But the undersized pup showed an unbridled tenacity at all times. Because of Togo's ailments and a temperament deemed too mischievous for a dog-sled team, Seppala sold Togo as a house pet to an older woman planning to retire in the lower 48. However, Togo was unsuited for civilized life. No amount of cooked steaks or dog toys could persuade him to be a house pet. One day, Togo took the opportunity to leap from an open window to freedom, navigating several unfamiliar miles back to Seppala's kennel. Leonard Seppala decided to keep Togo and return the woman's money, saying, quote, A dog so devoted to his friends deserves to be accepted. Unquote. But Togo's drive coupled with his innate intelligence proved troublesome for Seppala. No kennel was capable of imprisoning him. Seppala had to continue to build more elaborate locks and mechanisms to keep Togo from escaping. One day, Seppala had to make an emergency run and left Togo behind. Togo was not happy about this. He eventually broke out of his enclosure, then jumped over a seven-foot-high fence, but became entangled in the top wire mesh. He hung from his hind legs, squealing like a pig, until one of Seppala's kennel hands ran over to free him. Togo literally hit the ground running after being freed, and set off after Seppala's dog sled team. 
the determined Togo ran through the night to catch up to Seppala, following the other dog's scents. Seppala was dumbfounded when the little dog emerged from the tree line. He had no choice but to put a harness on Togo for the journey back. The second the harness was on Togo, the dog's demeanor changed to deadly serious. Togo thrived as a part of the team, traveling 27 miles in his first day. It was a feat unheard of for an inexperienced 8-month-old puppy. But from that moment on, Seppala knew Togo could work as part of a dog sled team. As Togo continued to train, it was apparent to Seppala that this dog was a prodigy. Over the years, Seppala quickly promoted Togo to the position of lead dog and became inseparable from the musher. Togo's instincts, intelligence, leadership, and drive were unmatched. Togo had even saved Seppala's life on numerous occasions, including once, Seppala claimed, when he took his dogs across the dangerous Norton Sound, a notorious shortcut across floating glacial ice in the Bering Sea. During a crossing, the massive glaciers could break apart, pulling whatever dog sled team was unlucky enough to be on it out to sea. Any mistake on the Norton Sound could lead to certain death. Towards the end of their crossing, they arrived at the shore, but there was a gap in the ice, too far from land for them to cross or for Seppala to jump over. However, Togo was small enough that Seppala believed that he could throw him across. Seppala tied Togo to an anchor in the ice and then tossed the lead dog over the gap. Togo immediately understood and dug into the ice on the other side in an attempt to pull the ice sheet the sled was on closer to the shore. However, the line dipped into the cold water and froze solid. The ice encapsulating the tow line had weakened it, so as soon as the line went taut, it snapped. Togo was stranded. With the shifting current below the ice sheets, Seppala and the rest of the team could be swept away to their deaths. But Togo, unprompted, immediately jumped into the freezing water of the Bering Sea. Seppala yelled out to Togo, knowing that the second his lead dog jumped into that water, a clock started to tick. The moisture coupled with the cold would sap the heat from the dog's body, and he would be dead in minutes. But Togo swam with intention, dog paddling towards the other end of the broken tow line. He snatched it up in his jaws and swam back to the other side. Togo climbed up on the other ice shelf and rolled around on the ice. Seppala was confused before realizing Togo was wrapping the line around his body, tangling it up on his harness in lieu of tying it on. With the line now wrapped snug around him, Togo dug into the ice once again and pulled the entire sheet of ice Seppala and the others were stranded on towards the shore until they touched and the sled could be safely pulled across. Leonard Seppala stood slack-jawed as his lead dog had just saved his life. He quickly built a fire to warm up the best sled dog he'd ever seen. Now, with the serum relay underway, Seppala, Togo, and the rest of the team might have to traverse the Norton Sound once more. However, Togo was now 12 years old, an old man when it came to a dog, and an ancient relic when it came to a sled dog. But even at this age, there was no dog in all of Alaska Seppala trusted more to make the trek. Back in Nome, Curtis Welch continued to give updates on the diphtheria outbreak. The number of cases had risen to 27. Five children had died. These health updates, coupled with the news about the progress of the dog sled relay, crackled along the telegraph wires. 
Reporters across the United States remained glued to their telephones, eagerly awaiting news of the relay. They then printed the updates on the front page of most newspapers across the country. In an era of yellow journalism and heightened hyperbole, this story was perfect. The entire country tuned in, rooting for man and man's best friend to overcome the impossible odds and save the children in the little town at the top of the world. A reporter in Nome wrote, quote, All hope is in the dogs and their heroic drivers. Nome itself appears to be a deserted city. Unquote. At the next roadhouse at Manly Hot Springs, Callan's dog sled team emerged from the storm. Callan stayed at his sled and called for help. It had been so cold that his hands had frozen to the birchwood bar of the sled. A roadhouse attendant had to pour boiling water over Callan's gloved hands to get them unstuck. Callens was later quoted as saying, It was 56 degrees below zero, but I didn't notice it. But hell, what do you notice at 20 years old? The way station attendants carefully warmed the serum up and placed it on the sled for the next musher in the relay. The next few mushers were Atabascans, who worked as steadfast mail couriers for the small towns and native communities in the Alaskan interior. Running routes that their ancestors had for centuries, they completed their legs of the relay to perfection. The governor decided to speed up the relay by authorizing additional drivers for Sepala's portion, so each musher could travel without rest. Sepala was still scheduled to cover the most dangerous leg around the Norton Sound, but the telephone and telegraph systems bypassed the small villages he was passing through, and there was no way to tell him to wait at the town of Shaktulik. The plan now relied on a driver from the south catching Sepala on the trail. Drivers planned for their legs of the relay, including Sepala's colleague, Gunnar Kassen. Kassen assembled the best team of dogs he could from those that remained in Sepala's kennel. For his two lead dogs, he chose a brown husky named Fox and a black husky with one white front leg named Balto. Charlie Evans, another mail courier, waited at the top of Bishop Mountain. This was normally an incredible view, especially at night, with the stars and moonlight illuminating the timber-covered peaks and valleys below the vibrant aurora borealis dancing above. But the storm blocked out all of that beauty and replaced it with near-whiteout conditions. Around three in the morning, Evans heard a dog sled team approaching. The driver was George Nolner, who had just gotten married a few days prior, but volunteered for the dog sled relay nonetheless. The handoff went smoothly, and Evans was off. He knew the trail well and navigated his team along the edge of the cliff above the Yukon River. The river flowed powerfully underneath the frozen surface and soon spilt over the top. This overflow of relatively warm water made contact with the freezing air and turned to fog. The ice fog hung in the air like diamond dust, blocking almost all visibility. Charlie Evans knew the route like the back of his hand, but that didn't matter at all when he couldn't even see the dogs closest to his sled. He had no other option besides trusting his lead dogs to navigate the perilous cliffs over the Yukon River. After a few hours, Evans noticed the pace of his dogs fell dramatically. He called for the team to stop. When he walked through the Veil of White to check on his dogs, he found two of them collapsed on the ground. They each had severe frostbite on their hind legs. Evans placed them on the sled with the antitoxin and took their place in the team. He put the harness over his shoulder and trudged alongside his dogs. Charlie and his team pulled the sled through the whiteout to the next roadhouse. 
By the time he arrived at the next way station to hand off the serum, his two frostbitten dogs on the sled had died. They were frozen solid. Charlie Evans later responded to questions about his leg of the relay with just a single word, cold. After the harsh trail down Bishop Mountain, Evans passed the baton of precious antitoxin to an Athabascan mail carrier named Patsy. Patsy and his dogs had a relatively flat overland route and recorded the fastest time of the relay so far, averaging over 10 miles per hour. All of this despite the temperature once again dropping into the negative 60s. January 30th. Charlie Evans to Tommy Patsy. Bishop Mountain to Nolato. Patsy to Jack Screw Nikolai. Nolato to Caltag. Jack Screw to Victor Anajic. Caltag to Old Woman Shelter. These names were repeated over the telegraph wires and recorded by reporters piled around telegraph operators, pencils at the ready. Whole families crammed into their living rooms, eager for more news from the radio. People across the Midwest insisted on alternate strategies for the rescue, stating that if they were in charge, things would have been different. They proposed dramatic dirigible airlifts, airplane relays, expeditions over the frozen Bering Sea. All were outlandish, but seemed reasonable to the Monday morning quarterbacks in the lower 48. Victor Anajic to Miles Gonahan, Old Woman Shelter to Unilakleet. Miles Gonahan to Henry Ivanov, Unilakleet to Shaktulik. Henry Ivanov to Leonard Seppala. Ivanov now had the serum packed away in his sled, with the task of handing it off to the most experienced musher in the entire relay, Leonard Seppala. However, that task had an unenviable caveat attached to it. He didn't know where Seppala was. Seppala left thinking he would be attempting a multi-day expedition all by himself from the halfway point in Shaktulik back to Nome. However, the governor had called in reinforcements so the serum could travel the back end of the journey without Seppala having to stop and sleep multiple times. But Seppala had never stopped to sleep at a roadhouse that had a telephone or telegraph, so he continued on, thinking that he still had hundreds of miles left to travel. Ivanov eventually came across a large herd of elk just south of the Norton Sound. He paused for a moment, waiting for the elk to pass, when he heard the sound of a musher off the trail. Ivanov yelled out, The serum! I have it here! Through the trees, Ivanov saw the musher stop and turn in his direction. The lead dog was recognizable almost anywhere in Alaska. Sure enough, it was Togo. Seppala had chirped for the dog sled team to make a wide berth around the herd of elk, because for all of Togo's positive traits as a lead dog, he was still quite easily distracted. Relieved that he had caught Seppala before he had passed him, Ivanov relayed the updated information to the layered-up Norwegian. He was to take the serum to Golovin, 78 miles from Nome. The next musher would take it from there. An enormous storm was rolling in, and the trail conditions were expected to get a lot worse. Ivanov then finished with the worst of the updates. The epidemic was getting worse. Soon the number of diphtheria cases in Nome would exceed the 30 doses available in the cylinder and that was assuming none of the antitoxin vials had been damaged by the freezing conditions on the trail. Thinking of his daughter and the other children in Nome, Seppala said farewell to Ivanov and headed straight for the next roadhouse. He did some calculations in his head as he looked up at the clouds above him. He knew he would have to beat the storm. So, he abandoned the trail and began the voyage across the frozen ice of the Norton Sound. Ivanov winced as he saw Seppala take the risk and disappear into the white, 
But if anyone was capable of navigating the dangerous sound in these conditions, it was Leonard Seppala and Togo. When Ivanov returned to the roadhouse and checked Tulik, he looked at their makeshift thermometer. The quicksilver, the coal oil, the ginger extract, and even Perry Davis's painkiller were all frozen solid. The temperature was off even their extended scale, somewhere in the negative 80s. Seppla could barely see his own hands in front of his face. The eddies of drifting, swirling snow passing between the dog's legs and under their bellies made the dogs appear as if they were fording a fast-moving river. Togo was navigating by just instinct and his keen sense of smell. They carefully navigated the ice sheets, which began to crack apart in the storm. Gale force winds lashed at Seppala's team, but they managed to cross the shifting ice of the Norton Sound by early morning and took shelter in an ice and sawed igloo from a native fisherman. After he and his team slept, Seppala emerged from the igloo and looked back the way they'd came. The whiteout conditions had cleared just enough to reveal an open expanse of water in the Norton Sound. All the ice had been swept out to sea. If Seppala had been even an hour late, he and his team, including the life-saving serum, would have been helplessly dragged out into the Bering Sea. Next, they had to cross Little McKinley Mountain, another of the toughest parts of the trail because of the extreme elevation changes. The team ascended over 5,000 feet of altitude in just eight miles. Seppala, ice dangling from his beard, Togo, an even older man in his own right, and the rest of the weary dog sled team limped to the next roadhouse. On February 1st at 3 p.m., Seppala arrived at the next roadhouse and passed the serum to Charlie Olson. All in all, Seppala traveled 91 miles with the serum, but also drove 170 miles from Nome to Shaktulik to meet the serum for the turnaround of the relay. In total, he covered 261 miles, the longest distance in the relay by over 200 miles. In one day, he covered 84 miles in a single drive. Charlie Olson took off into the brunt of the storm. He was surrounded by nothing but white, like some mushers before him, he couldn't even see the dogs closest to his sled. The tow line just bounced as it led into the white void. But the worst was the wind. Gale force winds repeatedly knocked the dogs off their feet and threatened to flip the sled multiple times. After being thrown on after being blown off the trail, Olson decided that continuing was impossible and built a makeshift shelter to wait out the worst of the storm. But as he huddled with his dogs under the tarp and blanket for warmth, he noticed he could barely move his hands. Frostbite was setting in, and the storm hadn't gotten any better. He looked at the metal cylinder, so close to the finish line, and knew they had to go, and they had to go now. Traveling into a headwind in negative 70 degree temperatures, navigating around snow drifts over 30 feet tall, Charlie Olson just managed to make it to the next roadhouse. Waiting inside were Gunnar Kassen and his team of dogs led by Fox and Balto. At this point, back in Nome, Dr. Curtis Welch and Mayor Maynard had seen the weather reports. The blizzard would surely smother the relay. They made a desperate decision. They put the relay on pause until the storm died down. They simply could not risk losing the antitoxin this close to Nome. Orders to suspend the handoffs crackled over the wires until the lines went dead from the effects of the storm. 
In the little roadhouse in Bluff, Alaska, two mushers completed the handoff. The telegraph lines were dead. They never received the order to pause. So, Gunnar Kassen departed from the penultimate leg of the journey in the worst conditions he had ever seen. Time moved slowly in the bubble of light produced by the lantern on the sled. Kassen couldn't tell if he and his team had been traveling for minutes or hours. When the storm opened up, he saw that he had already passed a roadhouse he had planned to rest at. He couldn't turn back now. He pressed on. Gunnar Kassen reached point safety ahead of schedule on February 2nd at 3 a.m. The next driver, Ed Roan, believed that Kassen and the relay had halted at Solomon per Dr. Welch's orders, so he was fast asleep. Kassen saw that the roadhouse was unlit, not even a hint of lantern light inside. Kassen expected the worst. Maybe the next musher had gotten lost in the storm. Visibility had improved, and he was making great time, so Kassen decided to finish the final 25-mile leg himself. Balto and Fox blazed ahead. While visibility had improved, the gusts of wind had gotten worse. Now hurricane-force winds knocked the team off the trail repeatedly. Still, they pushed on. The wind ripped at the sled, nearly knocking it off balance, when suddenly, a huge surge of wind lifted the sled completely off the ground. The sled overturned midair, dumping its driver and its contents into a snowdrift. The team of dogs struggled in the mess of the tangled towline. Kassen swam through the sea of cold powder before finally popping his head out into the even colder air. He struggled to untangle the dogs and reset the sled. After anchoring the sled to the trail and untangling his dogs, his heart sank. The bundle containing the diphtheria antitoxin was nowhere to be found. Kassen dove back into the snowdrift, looking for the bundle. He frantically flailed his arms through the snow. All the while, he knew that both he and his dogs would succumb to frostbite if they didn't start moving soon. But without the cylinder of serum, the entire relay would have been for nothing, and hundreds of children would die. A minute passed, then another. The dogs huddled together on the trail, whimpering as they braced against the wind. Kassen could barely feel anything with his thick gloves on. So, in an act of desperation, he ripped them off. The tips of his fingers were already blackened, frozen solid. He was completely submerged in the snowdrift when he thought he felt something. He repositioned in the white void and reached with every ounce of strength that he had. His frostbitten fingers clasped around the bundle, and he pulled the insulated cylinder out of the snowdrift. Gunnar Kassen waded out of the snow and placed the serum back on the sled, and struggled to put his gloves back on his half-frozen hands. His extremities cried out in pain as hypothermia began to take hold. His blood vessels constricted in his arms and legs, trying to keep his internal organs functioning. It was as if his arms and legs were already deemed a lost cause by the rest of his body. Still, he tied down the cylinder and urged his dog team forward. Back on the trail, Kassen lost all sense of time. His vision narrowed, his thoughts wandered. His body craved one thing more than anything, sleep. Pins and needles pricked at his extremities as if some phantom tattoo artist was fulfilling a request to tattoo his fingers and toes solid black. He saw a soft, sandy beach. It looked familiar, like something out of a dream. A bend in the trail, 
also familiar. Then his eyes caught the glimpse of a cross suspended in the swirling snow above the horizon. This was it. Cassin was being called up by the Lord. Cassin was too exhausted to ponder his mortality, and instead sleepily accepted his fate. Fox and Balto howled out into the wind, snapping Cassin back for just a moment. The cross that hung in the air was attached to something. A tower, a steeple, a church, gnome. Gunner Cassin slumped awkwardly on the end of his sled as the dogs pulled the sled down Front Street. With the relay put on hold, no one in Nome was expecting the serum to arrive that day. Someone in the Miners and Merchants Bank noticed him first and flung the doors open, then yelled out. Soon, the bystanders in Nome lit lanterns, bundled up, and braved the storm. The denizens of Nome helped Cassin off the sled. The exhausted and hypothermic musher looked to his team and muttered, Damn fine dogs, before collapsing. Dr. Curtis Welch woke when he heard the commotion outside on Front Street. Several bystanders cheered as others helped Gunnar Casson to the hospital. Dr. Welch bundled up and went out into the frigid air. He walked up to the sled in the street. The exhausted dog team panted in their harnesses. Dr. Welch located the metal cylinder that had been passed through the hands of dozens of mushers and took it inside. In the hospital, Welch opened the capsule and saw that not a single vial of the antitoxin was broken. Within a few hours, he was treating patients, some of whom had been waiting at death's door. In the end, the total death toll of the diphtheria outbreak was six children. Without the serum, it would have been hundreds. The quarantine in Nome was lifted soon thereafter. Together, the dog sled teams covered the 674 miles in 127 and a half hours, a new world record done in extreme sub-zero temperatures in near-blizzard conditions and hurricane-force winds. Several dogs died during the relay. Some of the mushers had permanent nerve damage from frostbite. But perhaps the most undersold part of this entire story is the fact that they did it again. Due to pressure from new aviation advocates, Governor Bone authorized half of the second serum run to be delivered by aeroplane. On February 8th, the first half of the second shipment began its trip by dog sled, while the plane failed to start, when a broken radiator shutter caused the engine to overheat. The plane failed the next day as well, and the mission was scrapped. In the aftermath of the new technology's failure, the aeroplane advocates were finally gracious in their editorials. An article from the New York Sun put it best, quote, Science made the antitoxin that is in Nome today but science could not get it there. All the mechanical transportation marvels of modern times faltered in the presence of the elements. Other engines might freeze and choke, but that oldest of all motors, the heart, whose fuel is blood and whose spark is courage, never stalled once." Unquote. Newspaper articles and radio broadcasts praising the dogs flooded front pages and airwaves from Des Moines to Corpus Christi. The second dog sled relay involved many of the same mushers and dog teams from the first, but faced less severe weather this time around. Gunnar Kassen and Balto did not participate in the second run. They were already on their way to tour the continental United States as heroes. Reporters needed a sole champion, a face for the story, and since the name of Kassen's other lead dog, Fox, 
may have confused readers into believing that an actual fox was pulling the sled, the reporters heaped all the glory on Balto. A bit of controversy surrounds Gunnar Kassen's finish. Some accused him of actually knowing about the delay of the relay and bypassing the roadhouse anyway so he could capture the fame for himself. He denied these accusations, of course, stating that he could barely see the sled beneath him, let alone the roadhouse. So, Balto and Kassen received the lion's share of the praise more than any other musher or dog team. For the most part, Leonard Seppala stayed out of the controversy. He had work to do. However, years later, when a statue was cast in Balto's likeness in New York City's Central Park, Seppala was heartbroken. By this point, several reporters had taken the Alaskan legends of Togo's achievements and simply crossed out Togo's name, replacing it with Balto. Still, Seppala wasn't eager for the spotlight and tended to shy away from reporters. But in 1960, in a rare interview with the National Park Service, Seppala opened up a bit, mentioning that Balto was never in a winning team and even referred to him as a scrub dog. But he quickly changed the subject to praise Togo. Quote, I never had a better dog than Togo. His stamina, loyalty, and intelligence could not be improved upon. Togo was the best dog that had ever traveled the Alaska Trail." Unquote. All participants in the dog sled relay received letters of commendation from President Calvin Coolidge, and the U.S. Senate even stopped work to formally recognize the event. Each musher during the first relay received a gold medal from the H.K. Mulford Company, who had produced the serum. Most sled drivers just sold their medals to pay for something to better help them on the trail. The debates still rage about Gunnar Kassen and Balto versus Leonard Seppala and Togo, but even they are just a small part of the greater whole. Characters that reporters just happen to pick up on. The truth is, it took so many participants to save the children of Nome. Medical bureaucrats who sent telegrams to acquire the units of antibodies from Northwestern hospitals civil servants who coordinated and planned the relay, Alaskan laborers who cleared the trails, Athabascan and Eskimo Alaskans who packed the food and attended the roadhouses along the way, other young mushers in the relay who avoided the press and simply viewed the relay as a job to complete. This is not the story of one man or one dog or even one team of dogs. This took everyone banding together to overcome a force of nature outside their control. Man versus microbe, man's best friend versus the elements. But the press needed their hero musher and their hero dog, so that's what Kassen and Balto became. For the remainder of the 1920s, Gunnar Kassen and Balto became minor celebrities in the lower 48, touring the countryside and performing with circuses and vaudeville acts for crowds of up to 20,000 people. Hollywood even produced a silent film about Balto, the savior of Nome, the mayor of Los Angeles presented a bone-shaped key to the city to Balto in front of City Hall. Afterwards, a silent film actress placed a wreath around Balto's neck. Balto had been neutered at a young age, so breeding was out of the question. Instead, Kassen continued the vaudeville circuit until he had to return to Alaska. He then sold Balto and the other sled dogs to the highest bidder. After passing through several hands, Balto ended up chained in a small enclosure at a Los Angeles freak show. However, after a letter-writing campaign by the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper, Balto was rescued and lived out the remainder of his life at the Brookside Zoo, where he attracted record crowds. The worldwide publicity of the serum run also worked wonders to promote diphtheria inoculations 
and vaccines in general. Prior to 1925, the disease killed 20,000 people a year in the United States. The number of diphtheria casualties plummeted immediately after Americans who had followed the story of Nome sought out vaccinations themselves. For years, poems and letters from children across the country poured into Nome. These messages praising the heroic dogs and sled drivers were so numerous that Nome's elementary school children, many who had survived the diphtheria epidemic themselves, were tasked with responding to them. After the serum run, Leonard Seppala continued to work as a sled dog driver and breeder in Alaska. Togo remained his constant companion. In 1929, Togo died at the age of 16. Seppala was by his side the entire time. After Togo's death, newspapers eulogized the legendary lead dog, listing his countless impressive feats of intelligence and endurance. But Togo was still vastly overshadowed by Balto, who many still viewed as the sole savior of Nome. In 1932, sled dog racing was a demonstration event at the 1932 Winter Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York. Seppala, in his late 50s, threw his hat in the ring and earned a silver medal in the event. In 1946, Seppala and his family moved to Seattle, Washington. He continued to breed highly sought-after sled dogs, known as Seppala Siberians. Togo's bloodline still produces some of the best sled dogs in the world, even to this day. Leonard Seppala died in the 1960s at the age of 89. During the mid-20th century, dog sledding fell in popularity and was only common in the rural Alaska interior. The last U.S. post office dog sled route closed in 1963. Dog sledding nearly went extinct in the late 60s when snowmobiles arrived on the scene. However, mushing was revitalized as a recreational sport in the 1970s with the immense popularity of the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race. One of the awards for the race is the Leonard Seppala Humanitarian Award, which is given to whichever participant provides the best care to their team of dogs. Seppala wrote this diary entry when he was 81, decades after the gnome serum run and long after the death of his favorite lead dog. Quote, when I come to the end of the trail, I feel that along with my many friends, Togo will be waiting, and I know that everything will be all right. This episode was produced by me, Jake Barton, with story editing by Thomas Harlander. I know I promised my patrons that I would try to avoid making my episodes turn into audiobooks. Well, guess what? <laughs> I lied. <laughs> Still, I, I really hope this longer episode was worth the wait. Here's some facts that did not make the episode. It's really incredible to see the power of the press just compounding over time with the story. The name Balto just eclipses everything in the media surrounding this event. So much so that when I would explain to people the story I was currently working on for Astorium, I learned that the story of the 1925 diphtheria outbreak in rural Alaska and the subsequent dog sled relay to save the children there could just as easily be replaced with the true Balto story, and people immediately understood. This is probably due to the animated movie Balto, which was released in 1995. It was later a success on VHS, despite underperforming at the box office due to a surprise hit released a month earlier 
Toy Story. Another fun fact, Togo and Seppala appeared in an advertisement campaign for Lucky Strike cigarettes in the late 1920s with Amelia Earhart. A critical book used in researching this story was The Cruelest Miles by Gay and Laney Salisbury. The book is an incredible deep dive into dog sledding culture and just the, the flavor of the time period in Alaska. Um, so if you want an even deeper dive into this story, I highly recommend The Cruelest Miles. Again, this episode topic was chosen by a patron. So if you are interested in pitching a Storium episode topic, you can do so on Patreon. And again there, for just five bucks, you can get access to all of my bonus episodes and help me keep the lights on. I'll leave you today with the sounds of the Malamute Chorus. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>